And welcome to the podcast, Cecily Blaine. Thank you. Let's start with a little bit background. So you grew up in London, England,、mm-hmm. and went to high school in Maastricht, Netherlands,、yeah. and now you're at Vancouver. Have graduated from UBC.、Mm-hmm. So how has that journey been for you? It's been good. It's been really fun. I've been very fortunate to have lived in a lot of places. I think growing up, my family really valued travel and valued like showing me different parts of the world, which I've really appreciated, and it's a huge privilege. Um, and yeah, growing up in London, I grew up、um, in the suburbs of London, not like the exciting <laughs> part, but、um, yeah, in the suburbs with lots of different people, different communities. It was a predominantly black neighborhood,、um, and then moving to Maastricht was a bit of a culture shock for me. Very different,、um, a lot more conservative in.、Um, That part of the Netherlands, even though the Netherlands in general is pretty progressive, but that part was pretty conservative. But I did get the opportunity to go to international school called United World College,、um, and it's a movement that really centers、um, finding world peace through education, which was like really powerful for me, and is where a lot where I learned so much of. Uh, everything that I'm interested in now is where I first started to learn about feminism. First started to learn about inclusion, things like that.、Um, yeah, and then ended up getting the International Leader of Tomorrow Award scholarship to UBC,、um, and that's how I ended up here. Excellent.、Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that your education in Maastricht, the Netherlands, have also inspired you to learn more about these issues that you deeply care about today,、mm-hmm. including diversity, inclusion, feminism, as well as Creating this environment for young people to further peace through education,、mm-hmm. and as well, you mentioned in other interviews that a big inspiration for you is your mother and your grandmother, and how they've brought you to the activism landscape in a very early age. So, have you talked to them about your current work and your past work founding Black Lives Matter in Vancouver、mm-hmm. and your current consulting company <laughs> based、uh, based on diversity and inclusion? And what do they think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think they're quite proud of me, which is great.、Um, growing up, my, you know, I went to my first protest with my grandmother. I think I was maybe four or five years old, <laughs>、um, and we were protesting. They were, they wanted to close down the local、um, fire house. Um, so that we wouldn't have any fire services in our, in our local community, they wanted to replace it with condos, and so we went on this protest because we wanted to stop that. And it was just I remember like being on her shoulders at the protest and things like that. And so that's always like a really poignant memory. And I know a lot about my grandma's history, like protesting against、um, nuclear weapons back in like the seventies and things like that. And obviously, you know, she was a single mother, so she raised my grandma. She raised my mother to be.、Um, Yeah, the same. Very passionate about、um, supporting people and like making good decisions and、um, helping people, especially from marginalized communities, to to grow and to have their voices heard. And yeah, a lot of that's instilled in me. Right. So since you've come to UBC,、uh, finishing European studies as well as being very engaged in the campus community, including writing for the Talon、mm-hmm. and. Um, also in career advocacy around Vancouver as、mm-hmm. well as UBC. So, how did you choose to get yourself involved in writing and journalism and new media? And do you think this area、uh, plays a specific part、mm-hmm. in furthering policy or creating dialogue or disseminating democracy?、Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I think a lot of 
the work that I've been doing, I I do genuinely believe that activism plays such a huge role in changing our society and transforming our communities. I think there's a lot of space for traditional politics and um, traditional ways that we look at democracy, but I think activism has such a key role to play in all of that. And I think even some of like the most basic things, um, like gay marriage, for example, has come from years and years of activists working and pushing um, to change the system. And so now I think in Canada, you know, we've had gay marriage for over 10 years. So I think we sort of see it as like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, but that came from like, yeah, decades, centuries even of people fighting um, to have their rights heard and eventually people in positions of power listening to them. Um, so I always kind of maintain my connection to activism and um how I really see that as a learning opportunity. And even now that I work in a lot of corporate spaces and I do a lot of talks and like workshops in, um, yeah, corporate offices, academic environments, I still remain very like closely linked to activism and grassroots community organizing as foundational values and as a way to do this work. Absolutely. And I think you brought a very good point in terms of people in the LGBTIQ community fighting for their rights for a really long time, including feminists from years back fighting Mm -hmm. for voting rights. So since you talked about in your high school years that you had a lot of experience in building common understanding between different groups, and that you mentioned in corporate settings and academic settings also bridging the gap between activism and policy change, so when it comes to like really effective communication of these topics to people, uh, what are the lessons that people should learn and what's the common mistakes? Yeah, I think communication is so valuable. And I think what I've found is a lot of the time when I'm doing this work and I'm trying to explain to people, you know, racism exists and homophobia exists. And a lot of people still don't believe that that can happen here in Canada. Um, And one of the big ways that I've found to help people to understand is like trying to use empathy as a way to like encourage people to recognize that all of us in some way have felt that feeling of like wanting to belong or like wanting to be included or feeling left out or feeling othered or feeling different. And so that's like a common thread that we can all relate to in some way. And so I try to use that as like a framework of like, okay, you know, maybe you wanted to like when you were a kid, you wanted to like play with people and they said, oh, you can't play with us. But now imagine that that happens your entire life simply because of the color of your skin or simply because of your gender, simply because of your sexual orientation. And that's something that's still happening of people being discriminated against, people being left out, people um, experiencing violence or verbal threats simply because of their identity that they can't control. And so I try to use that as a way to like help people to understand that like we all have our own stories and we all have our own experiences of discrimination and oppression. Um, but sometimes we just need to be a little bit more compassionate with one another and recognize that maybe you don't understand that person's experience because you've not lived it. But what we need to do is kind of open our eyes more to like, yeah, to other people's experiences and try to just cultivate conversation because I think there's lots of language that gets thrown around around diversity and inclusion, intersectionality, anti-oppression. People like use these terms, but not everybody really knows what they really mean. Um, And so just like 
it's really important for me to help people on that journey of like really understanding what that means and then starting to like live that practice. Um, so yeah, for me, it's really a lot about empathy and language. Right. So in that same line of argument, I would also say then cultivating very healthy allyship mm. is a very important aspect of it because it's Absolutely. not just throwing around slogans and having a good corporate strategy to hire more diverse people. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, again, realizing that empathy from a very, very deep and personal level. Mm -hmm. So I talked about this also in the panel, um, uh, in the discussion at Women Deliver, and some people have said that it really took some large corporate leaders with daughters and finally realizing that their rights in the world are not as equal as their own mm -hmm. to be like, oh, wait a minute, that's an issue and I should fight for it. But it only took it there. Exactly. That they had a very personal connection. Mm -hmm. um, but it also makes me think what kind of world we live in if we can only cultivate empathy if someone has a daughter. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge thing that I see coming up a lot in my work because, yeah, when I'm working with corporate companies, most of the executives are white men. And so they don't understand the experiences of women, of people of color, of people with disabilities, of pe people who are refugees. And they just think, oh, let's all treat everybody the same. And like, let's, um, you know, everybody has equal opportunities in Canada. But unfortunately, that's not how things work. Like, there are a lot of people who have been systematically disadvantaged through so many different ways. And so for them to even get their foot in the door is a huge hurdle. Um, and I think, yeah, I get a lot of people saying like, oh, I didn't understand sexism until I had my own daughters and things like that. So then for me, that's like, okay, so what if you never have a black friend? What if you never have a queer friend? Does that mean you'll never care or understand the experiences of those people? And so I think, yeah, we really need just in general as humans to work on that ability to open our eyes firstly and then also come to create empathy for people, even if we have no connection with them. Because I think that's the real thing is like, and why like diversity matters so much as well, because if you just have a room of people who are all the same, they'll never consider anybody else's experience or perspective. And so trying to like get more voices in the door, get more experiences there, that's when you really start to, um, yeah, start to be able to think beyond yourself and beyond your own little bubble. And with many corporations and governments, they're already taking a step in, first of all, recognizing mm -hmm. that this is a problem. So I guess that's also why they reach out to you and say, here, we want more diversity and more intersectionalism. This is our goal and we want to achieve it and mm -hmm. we want you to help us. So that is the intention part. So how can we really bridge the gap between intention and policy? Mm. Because there's a lot of criticism and I think it's very fair criticism about the Canadian government, about our local government, and that um, things are not inclusive enough and policies are not inclusive enough. And even with rhetoric about this is 2015, this mm -hmm. is feminism, and having 50-50 cabinet, but the policies are not reflected. Mm. So how do you think we should bridge this divide between intention and policy? Right. Yeah, I think the, the issue is a lot of people, whether that's in corporate spaces or in, like, global, local, national politics use a lot of, yeah, a lot of buzzwords and a lot of language to get to where they are, to get elected, to get people to 
um, yeah, to like them, but then don't follow through. And I think a lot of the reason for that is because most people just don't know, and that's fine. Like, a lot of people are completely clueless and scared and confused when it comes to actually doing diversity and inclusion work. And that's okay, because we're sort of all making it up. I don't even know what is the right answer. But, you know, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to come up with new methods, new trainings, um, new workshops, new, like, packages for my clients. And at the end of the day, I could be wrong. There could be consultants who are doing it better than me. But I think the issue is that, like, politicians especially, they like to say, you know, we're, we're really working on this issue. I commit to this issue, blah, blah, blah. But then when they, when they actually get, in, get elected, they don't have... Um, the skills or the knowledge or the resources to actually put that into action. And so they're like, oh, you know, we're going to commit to, um, you know, having, making space for more women's voices in politics. But then it's like, okay, which women, you know, and like, how are you going to get them to be involved? How are you going to make sure that they enjoy their experience? How are you going to make sure their voices are actually heard? And so, like, for example, what I see with a lot of my clients is that, they say, okay, we want to have more women working in our space. And so the next year they have more women, but all of those women are in entry level positions. And so there's no women actually making it to executive or leadership positions. So it's like, okay, you kind of achieved your goal, but then those women are unsatisfied. They don't prosper in their career. They don't get promotions because they're not given interesting enough projects to work on. So they're technically on paper, you've done the thing, there's more women, but sexism still exists and so for me it's really about actually getting to the root of those barriers those pieces of systemic oppression and also supporting people in actually progressing in different roles whether that's in politics or business Mm -hmm. a part of what you mentioned is politicians bringing up big words and promises Mm -hmm. that they can't really fulfill at the end of the day so is then the solution lowering the expectations <laughs> or just i guess committing only a little bit mm-hmm. to what you know because also people are not satisfied with that <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think it is good to have um people having those conversations even if maybe they don't follow through on everything i think to even have somebody in a position of power like acknowledging systemic oppression, acknowledging history, making apologies for like gross injustices of the past. I think it's nowhere near enough, but I think even to bring those conversations to the forefront, like to have somebody in a position of power, like to have, not that I love Justin Trudeau, but to have Justin Trudeau speaking at Women Deliver, for example, is like not revolutionary in any way, but it's like a tiny, tiny way of saying like, okay, something's happening, something's shifting, conversations are being had. And so then people um, people can no longer deny the existence of, for example, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Report, and now that the word genocide has specifically been used, people can no longer deny that that was a thing, because people have been saying that for years, but now that it's been officially like done by government, the report has come through, it's been spoken about on national TV, it's like, okay, that's a th- that's a thing now, and we have to start f- finding ways to address it, whereas before it was like, you know, activists from across the community, families who'd, l- who'd lost women, um, trying to get people to listen, but it wasn't until government said, actually, we believe you, that then it became real, or it became acknowledged and valued by the country, and so... 
I think slowly that's how things shift is like the conversations beginning to get a little bit more attention because um, I think we can see the opposite happening like with Trump for example where this person with these horrible views becomes into a position of power and then suddenly everybody who also has those views thinks that it's okay to come out in public and be racist and be homophobic because the president does it so they can do it. But what if it was the other way around, right? What if the president was super super progressive, super inclusive and like, you know, again, like Obama had a lot of flaws, but what he did was he brought conversations about blackness, about African-American identity into a national conversation. And so then a lot of like young black people were able to see themselves represented, especially young black women saw themselves represented in Michelle Obama and the conversation was at least there. So maybe the follow through isn't always, but I think it does plant some of those seeds. Right. So then that leadership does matter even though it's optics but optics do mean something yeah. at the end of the day even if it's not entrenched in all policy yeah i think so a little bit i mean obviously we'd love to see more always um and i think there are models of of leadership doing more like i'm really impressed with um the mayor of london um he is the first muslim um mayor of london and what he's really done is like for example, when it was a hundred years since women got the right to vote in the UK, there was a big campaign, a big project that had so many different elements and so much follow through. And it was like a new statue was put up of a, the first ever statue of a woman put up in in London in that in a particular area. You know, projects and programs to support young women and girls, um, all of these different elements. So it wasn't just talk, and it wasn't just one thing. It was like a city-wide program that actually like yeah enabled people to feel more empowered and I feel like that's a pretty good example of like how things could be done and so obviously we'd always love to see more than just talk but I think the talk is helpful than the silence definitely especially given the position that London is in in a country where this rhetoric of right-wing nationalism Mm -hmm. of Britain first in a way is coming back even more fiercer than ever uh, with the problems regarding Brexit. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned in your previous answer that it's very important to find different methods and different approaches and pamphlets and these delivery methods to help corporations and government understand what is really diversity, inclusion and Mm -hmm. equity. So what are some of the methods that you use to reach out to people, for example? As you mentioned, many people are afraid and due to toxic masculinity and many Mm -hmm. other issues, they don't really want to admit or they've been blinded by this traditional narrative for so long that Mm -hmm. they're very unwilling to give up what they have, Mm -hmm. even if the corporate strategy is we should have more diversity. Mm -hmm. How do you reach these people who are very hard to reach? in these cooperate environments with specific methods and yeah. dialogue. That's the hardest part of my job. Mm-hmm. I definitely have a lot of challenges with that. I mean, sometimes I don't reach them and that's just how it is. Like sometimes I'm able to make a little bit of difference further down the organization and sometimes um yeah, sometimes they buy into it or they accept it, but they don't fully believe it. Like they just agree because if they didn't agree, it would look really bad. Um but I think with some people, 
again, just going back to that idea of empathy and like helping them to tell their own stories as well, because I think a lot of folks. Um, so, for example, the very first corporate workshop that I did, I made the mistake of um, very uh, right at the very beginning. I talked about white privilege and they freaked out and um <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, we're not ready that, that we're not there yet. We're not ready for those conversations. Um, and what I noticed in them was they they knew what it was, like they had a sense of what white privilege was. And I think it's because conversations are popping up here and there, even in mainstream media. But they felt so attacked by it. They felt like when we were saying you have white privilege, we were saying, therefore, you should be replaced by people of color. And I think that's a fear that a lot of people, especially like white men in positions of power, they have this fear that diversity means they will be replaced by more marginalized people. But that's not the case. It's, you know, folks of color and women will have more opportunities, but it doesn't mean you have to go away. You don't have to give up your position in order for other people to succeed. It's not, you know, there's this kind of analogy it's like it's not a pie you know just because somebody has some it doesn't mean there's less for you it, there's enough for everybody right and so yeah it's I think that's been a challenge of like trying to let people know that you don't need to be stressed you don't need to be worried um, and I know it's like really hard and kind of like helping them through that process and like yeah, reassuring them that it's not a personal attack. It's a it's a systemic problem, and like you as an individual are not responsible for the lack of diversity. You just need to help with this process. You need to buy into it. Um, and some people, you know, it doesn't work. Some people are just like angry about it and they switch off from the process. Um, and yeah, it is what it is. But for some people, they're like, oh, okay, and they start to get it over time where they realize they have personal work to do um you know one uh, you know one of the people that i was working with i was trying to yeah back to this white privilege conversation i was trying to like explain what it is and i realized that they needed to start even further back in terms of like diversity and inclusion like 101 they needed to like be educated about systemic privilege they needed to understand like slavery colonization indentured labor all of those things are the reasons why Canada is an unfair place for a lot of people and there's still existing injustice but they'd never made those connections to me it's obvious but for a lot of folks it's not and so just helping them to understand it's not your fault it's the fault of our ancestors but we now in the 21st century need to do something about it right so yeah. it seems like that process is again very personal mm -hmm. but it would take a long time right? yeah it takes years. Like, I remember the first time, um, like, for example, I, the first time I met somebody who, like, used different pronouns, I would say it maybe took me, like, a year to, like, have that in my language just, like, casually and be able to just use it like that. So it takes a really long time. And ev all of this is a growing process. And I think as well in, like, business and politics, people want answers now and they want solutions now. They want, like, a checklist and a quick fix. But this is an ongoing journey of learning for each of us. And I think that's why people find it really hard. Right. And going back to the government discussion as well, entrenching that even in government, so it's more difficult and it's going to be slower than mm -hmm. many corporate spaces as well. Yeah. So speaking of that, 
working with a lot of clients from municipal government to small, large corporations. So what are the most common barriers to encourage meaningful change? Mm. Is it bureaucracy? Is it, again, these people not listening or not willing to admit? Or is it a combination of these things and extra steps? Mm. I think it's a combination. I think before I got into this work, I thought it would be the people. I thought it would be people are resistant. But actually, most people are very open to it. I'm pleasantly surprised at how many people are already on that learning journey and are like ready for the work. But yeah, there are a lot of barriers in terms of bureaucracy, in terms of like how slow change is, like working with different cities, city of Vancouver, city of Richmond, and also some like um, federal um, parties, um, political parties as well. It's like the commitment, the energy, the passion, the love for change is work is uh, love for change is there and it's hard work but it's really like there's because our systems are so 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 entrenched in 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 these like historical things like everything that we have in Canada was built uh, like 150 years ago part of a colonial project that disenfranchised indigenous people and it's so hard to tear that apart and say actually maybe the way we've done things isn't always the right way and to like try to decolonize that is so difficult and like trying to get people to recognize you know even just as small as like filling out paperwork to like change a thing or like having everybody vote on something to make a difference and like um yeah just all of these nitty-gritty things so the bureaucracy is a huge issue when it comes to like government or political parties being able to make a difference um and i think also fear as well fear of like who who will like this and who won't especially as it comes up to election season it's like yeah by by satisfying one group are you you know offending another and it we will all we as in people who care about like social justice and inclusion will always be the minority because it's largely like people of color women lgbtq people who are like driving these movements so we'll always in some way be the minority and so it's a lot easier to ignore our voices even though what we're saying has been like statistically proven and there's a lot of research that shows how important diversity and inclusion is it's just yeah, it's just it's just a challenge. It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of money, and so it always gets left to like the last, the last thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what should government ask to activists and to leaders like you, who's driving change in this space, and how should they approach people and mm-hmm. ask about how things should change? Because again, going back to the communication part the power dynamics are very complicated Mm -hmm. in these relationships. And as you said, many of the changes are caused by years and decades of activism to finally reach that level for it to work. So now with a government that is presumably open to these dialogues regarding feminism, Mm -hmm. regarding indigenous reconciliation, and many other things, so what is the correct way and how should they listen to people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so challenging. I think um, one of the biggest issues also is that a lot of p- 
people don't have the experience and the knowledge and the tools to be able to have those conversations with political leaders because as you said there is that power dynamic and so there's a lot of people who um, want to say things and want to make a difference but they've never been given that platform before and so they don't say it in the right way they don't present their knowledge in the right way and so their voices are very easily dismissed as being angry or emotional or sensitive right um and so that's a huge issue of like how do we establish a place where people in positions of power will actually sit down and listen to communities and i guess translate what they're trying to say into ways that can make a difference rather than seeing those people as like agitators or like yeah, angry activists, because that's what happens so often with Black Lives Matter is people just don't want to listen to us or they just write us off and say, you know, too radical, too extreme, you know, assuming that we don't have any good contributions. And so I think that's definitely a challenge. And I think, yeah, community consultation is just so important. And I think also that really speaks to the diversity in terms of who actually works for the government. So, for example, in the city of Vancouver, there's only like one, I think one or two black people who work as city planners. And so, you know, if black people are not planning a city, that means the city is not necessarily going to be planned with black people in mind. Right. And that's just one example. And so. I think they also have to think about not just consulting with community groups, but actually helping people who represent those communities actually work for the government, work for the city, and be able to make change from the inside as well. I'm also reminded of many problems when it comes to consultations, mm -hmm. because nowadays we see so many consultations happening, mm -hmm. happening online, offline, mm -hmm. in different platforms, but then the reach and whether the voices that are represented even at consultations can differ from what the communities actually mm -hmm. want because then people who come to consultations are specifically people who already care about these issues yeah. and then not reaching the people in the communities that can actually be affected, for mm -hmm. example. So those are definitely the challenges of consultations as we know it. And yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes consultations can seem like very scripted and like they basically already have an idea of what they want to get out of it. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah, it, there's so many things, even just down to small things, like do you pay people to be part of it? Do you like give them food, give them transport? There's a lot of people who have a lot of great things to say, but they have kids and they don't have a car and like all of these things that you need to be able to get to somewhere and participate in these dialogues. And so, yeah, it's usually only people who are like well-educated or like have money who are able to like be actively involved with things like that. So there's a lot of barriers in terms of like governments should be more willing to actually go to communities and like be with them and like yeah, provide them with resources in exchange for knowledge. Yeah. And a part of that is time too. Mm -hmm. Needing yeah. to go into that space in the community, take time to build rapport and mm -hmm. to listen to them in a very genuine level and not just do a one day tour and yeah. hit three different cities yeah. in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So another thing that I understood from your answer earlier was having activists presenting ideas in a very constructive and very formal manner so that the wording and the appearance mm. sounds good to governments yeah. and they're not being perceived as these angry black women, yeah. for example. Yeah. 
does that also raise some alarms in the activist community? Because I feel like many activists will be very unwilling to dress up in a suit mm-hmm. or present in a very formal manner to many city councilors or to a police departments or mm-hmm. to these governments with power that have been oppressing them for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the biggest reasons why a lot of activists don't really invest time in creating relationships with politicians because there's so much work to do like in their own communities and I think that's sort of part of what Black Lives Matter does. I mean, it depends on so many chapters across the world, but some chapters are very much you know, it's so much more about protesting and like supporting communities, hosting events, like sometimes in Vancouver, for example, there's a lot of groups that ask BLM if they want to be involved in like, yeah, policy help and you know meeting with different politicians but it's very hard for us to see how we can be part of that or like how that will benefit us and our community um and so it's it's much more beneficial for us to like yeah host events for the community like it's almost as if we try to do the work that the politicians aren't doing by like providing resources, providing spaces for black people to connect, you know, providing, um, well, not always, but sometimes we try to provide a little bit of funding here and there and like supporting communities, um, educational opportunities, especially for youth, um, things like that, which really should be provided by government and by, you know, municipality, but is not. And so, it's difficult for us to see ourselves really having a relationship with with politicians in any way because that's I just feel like you know we did we have met with the mayor we have met with um, different um, politicians provincial local national all kinds but nothing really comes of it so it's much better for us to focus our energy on um, yeah just doing what we love and actually being with our community and making those small changes locally rather than waiting for the for the big guys to make a difference. But in a way, it's also, again, as you mentioned, doing the politicians' work, mm-hmm. building that community and creating those spaces where black queer femmes can come and enjoy mm-hmm. their community, come and be safe and embrace themselves, mm-hmm. but also showing that to the politicians and say, see, this is what happens. And so they can see a policy like this being truly impactful. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also a very key part in politics, no matter what level of government you go to, it's sometimes you just gotta do it Mm -hmm. and then show them that, hey, this is happening. Maybe you wanna put in the policy here. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about your consulting firm's values. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned in the vision that you know, you're working towards radical inclusion. What is radical inclusion? For me, that's going beyond just inclusion. So inclusion is like making sure that everybody feels like they can contribute and feels safe in the space. Radical inclusion is like actually being able to like uplift voices that have been historically marginalized or um, yeah, supporting people who don't always have the resources to access certain spaces, um, decolonizing and trying to like, yeah, mess up some of those systems that have been historically unfair. Um, 
and yeah, just always moving beyond just doing diversity because, as I said, lots of people try to try to have diverse organizations, but at the end of the day, that doesn't necessarily mean that marginalized people actually get higher up, right? You see very little representation of people of color and women in leadership positions. And so radical inclusion is like, it's not just including those people and asking those people to be involved. It's like giving them the opportunity to thrive and to grow and to, yeah, professionally grow as well. Yeah. Right. So a part of that is definitely including some intersectional lens Mm -hmm. in that, as you mentioned. And so I was reading Vancouver's equity strategy um, last night um, that they released in 2018. And one thing I read in the strategy is, again, the priority being intersectionality, Mm -hmm. then creating policies for employees of the city to go through gender-based analysis training mm-hmm. um, that's provided by the Status of Women Canada. So I've done it last year when I was working for Global Affairs Canada, and I found it to be very minimal mm. because these are questions and questionnaires that you click through on the online forum, mm-hmm. and then you get a certificate at the end of it, proven mm-hmm. that you've done GBA+. Plus. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine many people who would just do it as, as you said, as a requirement at work. So how do you, how can we really make sure that this gender-based analysis training is really training these skills and not just a certificate? Yeah, that's a really tough one. I think um, I personally am not 100% sold on online training at the moment. I think in-person training is really important. I think it depends on the type of thing. Like if it's a like an academic program, I think that can be done online. But when it comes to something so personal, I think it has to have an experiential element where you're in person with other people and you get to know them and you like move your body and like, yeah, like really get into the content. Firstly, is I think really important. Um, and if that's not possible, I still think there are ways that online content can include, um, yeah, readings and like YouTube videos. And I think kind of just like trying to transform a lot of things that are traditional and try to include some non-traditional things. Like, for example, I was talking this morning about someone who teaches about leadership and, you know, leadership typically we think like the CEO or like a manager that's a leader but like why why can't we think of like Martin Luther King is also a leader or like a mom is also a leader so it's like trying to like transform our way we the way we look at things and be less academic be less formal about things and try to gain knowledge from community from history from our grandparents from our ancestors things like that Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. So how might the values of feminism and intersectionality be embedded with our government's behaviors, with their policies, and what parts of government do you think are the best suited to act on them? Because mm-hmm. we've seen a lot of movements from the federal government. Are we on the right track? And how can we embed deeper values yeah, I think I think we're on the right track for sure. Um, definitely money is very helpful in a lot of these things. I think if government 
can commit to funding for um, these initiatives, it's so valuable because so many organizations and communities are under-resourced, um, which really impacts the work that they can do. So money is great. Um, and I think that, yeah, there's so much that just can be learned from feminism around inclusion, around, um, yeah, intersectionality in terms of understanding, okay, we're not just supporting women, we have to support women who are marginalized in other ways too, whether they're a woman of color, queer woman, women with disabilities, trans woman. Um, and that's really what intersectionality speaks to for me is like recognizing you can't just focus on one issue. You have to like recognize that like racism and sexism and homophobia, they all like intersect and overlap. And I think that's something that's a little bit harder for like mainstream government and mainstream people to understand is that concept. Um, and I think it would be great to see, um, yeah, I think it would be great to see more from federal government in terms of, um, yeah, commitment to those issues, awareness of those issues. Um, and I think especially for folks who live in rural areas as well, like, cause we do have so much opportunity and access to resources and knowledge here in big cities, but there's a lot of folks still, um, yeah, living out in rural areas where, who are experiencing, um, additional layers of marginalization and uh, I think provincial provincial government could also help with those things like I know BC has one of the best human rights codes in the world like very expansive especially since including like gender expression and gender identity a couple of years ago like that's really that's incredible that we have that because it means that it's not just about like men and women it also protects like non-binary and genderqueer and trans people um which I think is really amazing. And so it would be good to see that like across, make sure that's across the country as well. That's I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of ways that governments can start to like weave in those things into, into our everyday lives. Absolutely. Have you seen some problems regarding how feminism is addressed by the government and in the government? Hmm. Um, I think in some ways, there is still a bit of a dated understanding of feminism. Like it's very much about like women's rights, which is great, but then it also forgets about like non-binary people and like genderqueer people. And also it forgets that like, well, people of all genders are impacted by the patriarchy. And so feminism actually supports everyone. And so like for, even like, for example, for like young, um, young men and young boys are very much impacted by like toxic masculinity and like really negative impacts of patriarchy. So I think when we solely focus on like cisgender straight women, we really miss out on a lot of a lot of people who need support, who need the most support even. Um, and I think that's something that could be addressed more or acknowledged more is how like, yeah, feminism is expanding every day and like new definitions are expanding and new concepts are being brought to light and I think what what we see from the government or what we see on TV or what we see in like mainstream media is kind of like the kind of femini feminism that we saw in like the 80s and 90s where it's very much about like cis women but I think there's so much more work to do around protecting um, especially trans women who are some of the most marginalized and experience some of the highest numbers of violence in North America. So I think we really need to see 
a greater commitment to that as well. And again, going back to the power dynamics, I think, yes, in business, but also in government that many people feel, including these more people, would be them giving up their power and their position to people who are minorities Mm -hmm. and women and non-binary folks. But many would also argue that including these more inclusive, radically inclusive feminist perspectives Mm -hmm. in government can build more legitimate government. Do you think that's true? I think so, for sure, yeah. I think, yeah, if we keep having the same people making the decisions, nothing will change because, you know, maybe over time they will start to come to terms with new concepts. Like, you can obviously see a difference between Justin Trudeau and his father, but that took, like, generations But if you actually now in the present day start to include more voices, more women of color, um, more queer and trans folks, more folks with disabilities into those positions and they get to be part of making the decision, the transformation will happen much quicker, I believe. Um, And it will be hard at first. And it doesn't mean just because that just because you're a person of color that you're like a perfect candidate for representation or that you're going to change everything. But I think it does do something in terms of like having those voices heard and normalizing the representation of those voices as well because I think you know if you're a hiring manager and you see that you know the premier is a person of color then you might be like oh look people of color um can achieve great things why don't we hire this person and it's just like those small things where it's like the things that we see in yeah in our like national identity of what it means to be Canadian, like if that starts to transform into a more diverse image, then I think that will trickle down into a lot of our other systems too. Mm-hmm. So lastly, I want to ask, after identifying all these challenges and also methods that we can counter them, how do we measure real equality or real change? Mm. Is it a 50-50 equal pay scheme? Is it we have a female prime minister, what are the measurements that Mm -hmm. we should use to see whether things have gotten better? (laughs) I think, yeah, I think that's a tricky question that a lot of people are asking right now, because in in the United States, I know that they focus a lot more on quotas. So it's a lot more like, okay, by the end of the year, we will have 40% women working at our company. And then once they reach that, they feel like they've achieved it. I feel like in Canada, that's less common. And yeah, I still have like mixed feelings about both methods. I think it is good to try to increase numbers. But as I said, you know, just because you have more women doesn't mean that those women are enjoying the workplace or that they're getting promotions and things like that so it's like challenging but I think I think it's about satisfaction of the people and people feeling themselves to be represented and people especially people in marginalized communities um, noticing a difference or feeling like they can relate to people in positions of power like where I grew up in England our MP was like this old white guy but the the majority of the area was like black and south asian communities and so like none of us really connected or related to that person very few people went out to vote because they didn't they didn't see themselves represented in politics and so um they 
yeah, they didn't they didn't really vote, even though their opinions matter. Um, but when yeah, when you look at the government and all you see is like these people who don't look anything like you and don't care about your concerns, you just get disenfranchised from the system, and so you don't bother voting, and then nothing changes. And so I think, um, yeah, having people who really represent their communities in positions of leadership is really important. Um, just to have those people's voices heard and yeah and respected and I think that eases the power dynamic a little bit like for example if we had um yeah if we had a city councillor like you know seeing who you know now we have more women um on city council I think that allows more women to feel like there's opportunities for them in Vancouver and to see themselves represented um yeah, so I think that's just one way, but it is so hard to measure and track the value and the difference that diversity and inclusion makes. And I think that's also why it's really hard to convince people that it's important because there's not a lot of data about it. Um, and I think one of the other issues I think that we have in Canada is that Canada doesn't do a very good job of measuring um, statistics, especially around race. And so it's very hard to see, like, the impact. I mean, I'm sure we, we can all, it's my assumption that the more recognition of racism that we have, the more, um, yeah, people of color in positions of power, the more policies against racism, the less racial violence there will be. And in, in the US, we can see that changing in some cities like for example in in new york um with alexandria ocasio-cortez being in power already they're seeing a, a decrease in the number of like racial hate crimes happening in the city and so i feel like there is difference being made but it's also in canada it's just hard to measure because we don't collect the data on those things so yeah i think the main the main suggestions for government would be like trying to collect data about race specifically, but other forms of marginalization and hate crime as well is really important um, and improving representation. Mm -hmm. And also measuring whether those people represented in government really are representative of their constituents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. So with that sobering note, let's close up the podcast mm -hmm. today. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Had a great time.